Genesis 15, just to really quick catch you guys up if you haven't been here before. Uh, last week and the week before, we looked at Abraham, and we really took time to focus on God's call of Abraham, um, and his name is Abram at the, at the current point where we are in the story. Um, God called Abram out of an idolatrous situation with his family and said, you're going to move away from your family, away from your inheritance, away from the country that you're used to, and I'm going to make a new nation out of you. I'm going to give you a new land, and you're going to follow me, and I'm going to bless you. And Abraham's like, all right, that sounds great. Uh, the problem was is that he brought his family along with him, even though God said, just come away from your family. So we found out that he brought his nephew Lot, and Lot got into trouble. His, his herdsmen started to fight with Abraham's herdsmen. And get this, Abraham said, we're so rich and we have so much stuff, we can't live together in the same land, so you pick a land and I'll pick a land. Sounds really nice, right? Um, so that's what he did. Lot picked Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, which at this time was really nice. Uh, it wasn't a wasteland yet. Um, and then we saw last week that Lot got himself into trouble again when Sodom and Gomorrah got seized by the four kings uh, that went against the five, uh, five kings that went against the four kings or, or vice versa. And Abraham had to bail him out. And uh, he took 318 of his servants and Abraham, and it was a miraculous victory. He, he beat five nations plus four nations to get Lot and all his family back. That's crazy. If you think about armies for nations, how many people that probably was. It was 319 people, including Abraham, and they went and got that victory. And it said that Abraham brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. And then we, saw, we talked about Melchizedek and how he interceded between the wicked king that was going to try to entice Abraham to allow him to keep the people, which is interesting if you think about it because it's kind of like the enemy. He says, let me keep the people. You can take all the goods for yourself. I want the souls. I want the people. Uh, and that's, a, that's definitely a type of the enemy. He says, yeah, you can have what you want, and he tries to distract Christians with things and material possessions. So that meanwhile, he's gathering up souls for himself, and we're distracted by our material things. So that's interesting. Uh, but that's where we left off, uh, just to kind of give you a, a quick summary. So it says in chapter 15, let's dive in. After these things, the things we just discussed, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield and your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So Abraham is afraid, or otherwise the Lord wouldn't say, Fear not, Abram. Why is he afraid? Well, he has all these things, all these possessions, and he's got no one to share them with. It was, in this culture, it was so important that you have a male offspring, a firstborn, so that you could carry on your lineage, your name. And God had promised that Abraham was going to have a name that was great, that the nations would be blessed through all of his descendants. And so far, at this time, I believe Abram was uh, 75 years old, and uh, he has nothing to show for it. He has no children. And in this custom of the day, if you had no children, the oldest servant in your house, or the old, basically the oldest person that you owned... Uh, the slave that you had, he was kind of like the steward of the household. He would then become your heir. And that's who Eleazar was of Damascus. And it's interesting, Eleazar, the name means my God, a help. And um, 
Many scholars believe that he's the unnamed servant in Genesis 24, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, uh, who goes on on behalf of Abraham to find a bride for Isaac, which is really interesting when you look at the types in Genesis 22 and 23, when Isaac is a type of Christ being sacrificed by his father Abraham. And then Isaac disappears, is not in chapter 23 at all. And the next time we see him, Eleazar, you know, potentially, my God, a help, the helper, is bringing a bride to him, which is really interesting when you think of the New Testament, that the Holy Spirit is described as the helper in John 16, 7. Uh, Do we have that verse? I think, uh, no, I didn't put that verse in. But John 16, 7, if you want to take a note, uh, it said Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as a helper that he's going to send And it's actually better for you that I go away, he says, because the helper is going to lead you and guide you into all truth and all the things that he's going to teach you are going to be about me. So that's just something that's interesting to keep in mind as we continue on in Genesis. There are tons of types, which is another word for saying foreshadowings or things that point to Jesus when he were to come on the scene. Um, So that's who Eleazar was. And in verse 4 it says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. So Abraham doesn't have a reason to fear. God said, I'm going to fulfill exactly what I said I would do. Come on out here, let's look at the stars. Can you count them? No, you can't. So you need to trust me because I can. And in Psalm 147.4, this is a cool verse. Speaking of God, it says he counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. So what he's using to point to Abraham saying, there are too many stars for you to count. He's saying that knowing that he knows every single star and its name. And I'm pretty sure it's not Betelgeese. Like he probably has his own name for them. Like we kind of know some star names, but God knows all the names of the stars. And he knows, he says, that's who your descendants are going to be. And as we'll see, we are Abraham's descendants and he knows our name. And that's really important to remember, that God knows exactly who you are and has called you to be a child of Abraham, a child of faith. Um, And in verse 6, this is where we're going to kind of, this is where the whole covenant, the Abrahamic covenant comes in to fruition. Verse 6, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So if you would, can you turn to Romans 4? I meant to ask you to do this. Keep your finger in Romans 4 because we're going to go back there again later. Um, But... If you can kind of put a little bookmark in Romans 4, it's in the New Testament. It's the sixth book of the New Testament, right after Acts, which is what we're in on Sunday mornings. There's too many verses here to put up on the screen, so I just put the the final verse on there. Romans 4, Paul is writing, saying that it's not about what you do. It's not about how you follow God's law. It's about the faith that you have. And he really points to Abraham here. And this is important for us to realize as we understand who Abraham was and what this covenant is all about. So if, you, if you'll read with me, verse up to 8. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And what he's saying is, 
Abraham, it wasn't the fact that Abraham did a bunch of good stuff that God called him. God called him as an idol worshiper. He said, you're going to follow me, and I'm going to give you all this stuff. I have all these gifts for you, all these promises for you that are going to be fulfilled. All you have to do is believe. And Abraham said, okay, I'm going to believe that. I believe that you have a son. And that was counted to him, or it's a, it's a, a banking term. It was put on his account as righteousness. So the belief that he had in God erased all of the, you know, going to Egypt and lying about his wife being his sister and all that weird stuff that happened earlier and all the things that he had done, like not obeying God immediately and delaying in Ur and then moving to Haran and all those things that he had done, they were all wiped out because he believed in God's promise and God put righteousness on his account. That's really important. It's, it's the idea of credit, as it were. If someone gives you credit, and Chris talks about this oftentimes, in the Old Testament, we had credit. You know, God gave the right, he accounted the righteousness foreshadowing Jesus' death and resurrection, which would actually pay for all the sin that happened before Jesus came to earth. So that's what's happening here. In uh, Romans 4, 23, 25, it says, now it was credited to him who was not written, oh, sorry, now it was credited to him was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's for us. When that verse in verse 6 shows up, we're not talking about the God that we sometimes believe exists in the Old Testament. He's all about rules. And he's not the same God that I read about in the New Testament, which we kind of fall into those traps sometimes when we're reading the Bible. We go, God decided to be nicer to people. No, that's not really how it works. It always was this way. It was always about you putting your full belief and trust in God. It's just that Jesus, his promised Messiah, hadn't been delivered yet. So instead of believing in a Messiah that died on the cross 2,000 years ago, it was believing in a Messiah that would die on the cross 2,000 years from now. So, um, and it's interesting because it actually, Jesus said that Abraham, he was talking to the Pharisees, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And the Pharisees were like, what are you talking about? You're not even 50 years old. What do you mean, Abraham? How do you know Abraham rejoiced? And he says, before Abraham was, I am and then they all were like, oh, blasphemy, because he used the name of God. But what he's talking about is the promise that God gave to Abraham as the, his descendants. And the, the word is actually seed, and it's singular. Uh, it's, a, it's a foreshadowing and a, and a prophecy of Jesus being the seed of David, the seed of the woman in Genesis 3, where he would fulfill all of those things that had been promised all throughout the New Testament. So it's really interesting that when we look at this one verse you can read right over it. But the entire Bible hinges on this one verse, if you want to think about it that way. The entire Old and New Covenant hinge on this one verse. It's believing with the faith that Abraham had in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's really, it's really cool how it comes out that way. Um, now, if you would turn to Galatians, you're like, wait, I didn't want to turn. You're supposed to have it on the screen. Don't worry, we'll get there. Verse 7, Galatians 3. It's only a couple books to the right. And if you like to take notes, you can write these verses down if you can't get there fast enough. Um, Paul is talking to the Galatians because what had happened was he had converted Christians in Galatia. And then other people came in and said, yeah, Jesus is really great. Believing in him is awesome. But what you need to do is follow all these rules and laws. You need to get circumcised like the Jews do. You need to follow all the Jewish ordinances. And Paul got really mad because... We sang it today, uh, it's for freedom, that God set us free. Jesus set us free. 
Uh, we don't have to follow the old. We're not under the penalty of the law. And Paul says in verse 7 of Galatians 3, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. You're like, what? The gospel's not preached to Abraham. He just says, I'm going to make you a great nation. What is Paul talking about? The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. So basically he's saying, even keeping the law, you have sin in your heart, and that's not going to get you anywhere. Um, And we're also under the punishment. If we try to keep the law and we don't, we're under that punishment. It says, the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So when he's saying he's preached the gospel through Abraham, when he said in you, all nations shall be blessed. How are all nations blessed? It's by his descendant, Jesus, making salvation available to not just the Jews, but to all of the world. Uh, Let's turn back to um, Genesis 15. You can. If you still have a finger in Romans 4, we'll go back there at the end. But uh, So what does it come down to? John 6, 26, 29, these are the words of Jesus. He says, um, Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. We as people, we like to know that we can contribute to society. I do this at my job. I, I want to know that I'm valued and i want we all want to feel good but we also want to feel like we made it happen right like when something good happens we're like yes sign my name to that because i did it you know write that email up put my name signature at the bottom because it was all me baby right am i alone in that i think i am because nobody's responding okay i don't know man, man you guys are humble i need to you guys need to come up here i need to go down there um but come on it's great when you ever, I used to get like, I used to work in banking, they'd have these little newsletters, and it would be like, congratulations to Jeff Desiato for a perfect, you know, not, didn't lose, over loss change, whatever you call it. That doesn't make any sense. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> when you work in banking, you have this over and loss, like, you know, for the cash drawer that you have, so. Uh, but I'd be like, yeah, look at my name. It feels so good to see it in print in an internal newsletter that no one else will see except for five people, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but, you get your name in lights, hey, that's great. So look what I did. And the whole world that we live in is founded on what we do. Make a name for yourself. Build a reputation for yourself on your accomplishments with no help from anybody else so you can say, ha-ha, mine. And then you get all the accolades and it's great. And we looked at it through Genesis. God said, I'm going to make you a name. I'm going to build you a city. And what did the descendants of, of Adam do? They said, no, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to build a city for ourselves. And then God confused their languages and sent them all over the earth because God had told them to multiply and fill the earth, not to stay all together and build a name for yourselves. You have my name written on you. You're in my image. You've been been created as a child of God. So when these people come to Jesus, they say, what do we have to do to get to heaven? 
or to do God's work. What do we have to do? Jesus said, here's what you have to do. You have to believe. Does that take any effort? Not physically. There's not something that you can write down and, and get accolades for. I believe it's something with a heart and with a mind that is yielded to God. And that is what the old and new covenant hinge on. So let's go back and pick up in verse 7. We'll look at what, he, what happens and how God institutes this covenant. And he said to him, this is God talking to Abraham again, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He was, he's like, I need a sign. I need something to prove that this is really going to happen. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And at first you're like, wait, is this Noah's Ark all over again? No, it's something different. And he brought him all these, cut them in half. Oh, what's going on? And laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half, thankfully. I love that the Bible puts that in there. But what does this mean? Why are all these animals coming forward? Um, it's really interesting, actually. Everything in the Bible is there for a purpose. Everything has a reason. It's God's inspired word. So when we look at these animals, there's some significance to them. And we're going to take a, a brief look at them. The first one is a heifer, which is a female cow, basically. Um, the heifer was sacrificed, is one of the sacrifices mentioned in Deuteronomy. When they would find an innocent man dead and they couldn't pin the, the blame on anybody, basically they would take a heifer and they would sacrifice the heifer in a valley flowing with water to cleanse the land and provide atonement for the shedding of innocent blood. So think about that. Keep that in your mind. Atonement for the shedding of innocent blood. In Deuteronomy 21.8, Provide atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people Israel, and atonement shall be provided on their behalf for the blood. That's an interesting picture when we start to think about sacrifices and Jesus' sacrifice. I encourage you all to read Hebrews 8 through 10. It will lay out how all the sacrifices point to Jesus Christ, and it's awesome. The uh, heifer was also used in the peace offering described in Leviticus 3. We're not going to look at that. But when you would have an offer of peace with God, um, you would bring a heifer. And that's interesting because Paul also says in another epistle that Christ is our peace. He brought peace between God and man. Um, so we see a type of Christ here in the heifer being sacrificed, cut in half, as it were. Then we have the female goat, which um, literally the, the, the word that is used to describe the female goat comes from the word that means to be strong or, or strength. Um, we all can point to Christ and say he is our strength, right? Leviticus 4, there's a couple verses up here, so if you just bear with me. This is what they would use to sacrifice for sin. The heifer was a peace offering and for the innocent blood offering, but the goat would be used as a sacrifice for any sin that had been committed. It says, if any one of the common people sins unintentionally by doing something against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and is guilty or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, then he shall bring as his offering a kid of the goats, a female without blemish for his sin which he has committed. And then in verse 29, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering. And by doing that, he would be placing his sin on the sacrifice, essentially. And kill the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering, and pour all the remaining blood at the base of the altar. And we know that the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. 
We can't have forgiveness. We can't have those sins wiped out unless blood is shed. And we see that in the cross of Christ, obviously. Verse 31, he shall remove all of its fat. And this is all details, obviously. We don't care about the fat necessarily. Uh, As fat is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma to the Lord. So the priest shall make atonement for him and it shall be forgiven him. So there's a sacrifice that takes place here with the female goat to forgive sin. And it says it's a sweet aroma to the Lord. Ephesians 5.2 says that we should walk in love as Christ did, who offered himself up as a sacrifice and a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. Christ is the sacrifice that is pictured in this female goat sacrifice, which is interesting. And then we see the doves and the pigeons. And you're like, those are weird animals to bring... But I'm glad you didn't cut them in half. I'm glad that you were very specific about not doing that. There's poor animals, right? Uh, it says, uh, the doves and the pigeons are the only birds that are considered acceptable for an offering. I know you guys are like, all right, is this like a history lesson? What's going on here? Don't worry. It's all going to make sense. <laughs> um, the doves and the pigeons, we see them come up in the sacrifices in Leviticus and all that stuff. But in Leviticus 12.8, it's really interesting. The doves and the pigeons were offered when the people could not afford a lamb or a goat or a heifer, you know, if they were poor, God made provision for even the poor and those who didn't have much to still have the opportunity to offer a sacrifice so that their sins could be forgiven. And it says in Leviticus 12:8, and if she is not able to bring a lamb, then she may bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. And it's important to note that this specific instruction here has to do with after a woman gives birth. They would circumcise the male on the eighth day, and then the woman would be ceremonially unclean for a time. And at the time, at the end of that time, she would come and offer this sacrifice. And it says, one as a burnt offering and the other as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for her, and she will be clean. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Anybody who knows the New Testament? Luke, uh, when we talk about this at Christmas, everybody knows the the Luke telling of Jesus' birth. We kind of stop short at this part because it's weird and we don't doesn't fit with our Santa Claus and our Christmas tree. But it says, Now when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him, this is the baby Jesus, to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So we see even Jesus fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law when he's a baby. He doesn't even have the ability to work. But it's the faith of his mother and the adherence to the law. And Jesus is sinless and perfect because even from eight days old, when he goes to the temple, he's fulfilling the law. And he says, I, can't, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. And that's a great type as well. Now, this part is pretty cool. I, I found this, and I'm sure other people have found it, but as Chris says, like, I felt like I found it. So <laughs> I got excited about it. The pigeons. You're like, pigeons are weird. I don't like them. They just walk around like this and they eat my trash and they're just annoying pigeons the word in in hebrew is gazal i don't think i'm pronouncing that right but it's from the root word gazal i know that's really different right and (laughs) it means to tear away strip off as skin from the flesh or to flay which if you're familiar with jesus's crucifixion we see that how they they took the whips and they actually flayed him essentially they scourged him and the pigeon is here as an animal that's cut in half. That's pretty interesting, I think. There's a lot of types here. And it says in uh, Leviticus 1, 
about this bird, and I don't want to get too far with it, but it's pretty cool. If the burnt sacrifice of his offering to the Lord is of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or young pigeons. The priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off its head, and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out at the side of the altar. I know, this is gross. You guys didn't want it. Good thing we're fasting, or else you'd be thrown up everywhere, right? No. <laughs> Uh, and he shall remove its crop from its feathers and cast it beside the altar on the east side into the place for ashes. Then he shall, check this, I think this is interesting. It's just a picture for me. I don't know if it's, it's actually biblical or anything. But he shall split it at its wings, which I kind of see the bird being like spread out like this, but shall not divide it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt, offer, burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Again, pointing to what we see of Jesus in Ephesians. So there's so many things in here, and it gets really interesting. And I encourage you guys to really study. And that's what these Tuesday nights are kind of for. It's to point out what it says in the Bible so that you will then go and take it and run with it. Not just to uh, necessarily have a, you know, we want you to have a good feeling message when you walk out, but it's important that we also are being built up by the word of God and feeling the power that is here. Because anybody will try to tell you that eh, this stuff doesn't apply to us. It doesn't mean anything. He's talking about birds and pigeons. What does that have to do with anything? But if you study, you'll find it has everything to do with everything. It has everything to do with Jesus. The Bible, uh, Jesus said in Hebrews, or Hebrews quoting, saying uh, that, you know, behold, the volume of the book is written of me. Everything in there. And we saw on Sunday how you can point to Jesus through the law and the prophets and the Psalms. And Jesus did it on the road to Emmaus when he rose from the dead. Everything in this word comes back to Jesus. So let's come back to verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, uh, oh, did I miss a verse? I'm sorry. Verse 11. Uh, and when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So he's got all these carcasses here, and all the birds of prey are like, yes! Jackpot. And Abraham has to drive them away. But when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The people who are currently occupying the land that Abram and his descendants were ultimately to inherit, God was being gracious to them by saying, their sin is not so extreme that they cannot still turn to me. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. They haven't reached a point of no return yet. And God is being gracious, even though Abraham's like, what? I thought you said I was going to have a land. Now you're saying I have to wait 400 years for that? He says, no, don't worry. You're going to die in peace in a good old age. You're going to have a good life. Your descendants are going to inherit it. But I'm going to give this land 400 years. That's God's long-suffering and patience. We always look at God of the Old Testament as lightning bolts and floods and people being struck dead. But time and again, as I read the Old Testament, I see God waiting for people to turn, waiting, being patient, being long-suffering. And that's comforting to me. And it says... um, He talks about this, uh, sorry, verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark 
Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And again, we see this imagery and we're like, what does this mean? Why was Abraham so afraid? And I think it's really interesting because before this covenant is made, Abraham is still outside of it, essentially. It's not being, it hasn't been ratified yet. God told Abraham what he was going to do, but there hasn't been a stamp, a seal. The transaction has not been made. And Abraham is fearful because he doesn't know what God's going to do. He's scared. And that's very similar to us. But when we're not inside the covenant, when we haven't put our belief in Jesus, like he said, that was the work that we need to do, it's a scary life. You, you don't believe in God and you don't know why you're afraid of everything all the time. I, you know, we have fear of death. We have fear of money problems. We have fear of all these things. But ultimately, our rest is in Jesus and our peace is in Jesus. So when we come to Jesus, we don't have that fear anymore because perfect love casts out fear. But before the covenant is ratified, if that's the right word, Abraham is scared to death. And we see this before. We talked about it um, a while back, I think, when, when he talked about the law being given, where God came down on the mountain. He's about to give the Ten Commandments to Moses. Every time God is about to establish something, a covenant, something serious happens. And it's really interesting to see this. Um, Exodus 19, verses 17 through 19. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, which is actually the same wording that we see here about the smoking fire pot. And the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. Not like some like tele, tele, whatever it's called. (laughs) That thing when people, you hear their thoughts. It's not like that. God spoke by his audible voice at the Mount of Sinai, and there's smoke and fire and trumpets blasting, and it's just crazy. And everybody's freaking out, and they say, don't let God speak to us anymore. You get the word from God, and you bring it back to us. Uh, God was trying to, as Chris says uh, so delicately, scare the hell out of them. (laughs) He didn't want them to chase down the track of hell and to find all the things that the world had to offer that ultimately led to death and destruction. He's saying, fear me so that you will come close to me and allow me to protect you from the fear of death, from the fear of loneliness, from the fear of everything that the world is. So we see here fear tied with smoke and fire again. It's very interesting because it's the Abrahamic covenant. That was the Mosaic covenant when he gave the Ten Commandments. God is consistent. I don't know if you guys ever realized that in the word. He's very consistent in what he does. And I'm thankful for that because I am the least consistent person, the least reliable person there is. But he's faithful when I am faithless. Amen. Verse 18, on the day, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, if we could put up these last two verses, First Kings 18, 24. Then you call on the name of your gods. This is when Elijah had the prophets of Baal. I will call on the name of the Lord, Jehovah, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. So when God comes in the form of fire, he's proving that he is God. All the other gods, they're just idols. They don't have any power. They don't do anything. They're mute. They're dumb. They're fruitless. And then Hebrews 12, 29, for our God is a consuming fire. And what is he consuming? He's consuming sin. He's consuming wickedness. But he's protecting us because we are clothed in Christ. Um. So verse 18, 
On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now, I don't know if you guys can see this. It's a little small. If you could go back to that first one. Sorry. Um, In the Abrahamic covenant, which he said in chapter 12... He said, you will have, or is it here? I'm trying to think where it is. He outlines where they're going to have, oh, so the river Euphrates to the great river in Egypt. That's the borders that God's chosen people have as their land, which if you can see, guys, see the red bars there? That's the river Euphrates there, that red long river there. And then over here on the left-hand side, next to that little peace sign, um, that is the great river in Egypt. That's pretty big. That's the, um, the Red Sea, I believe, the little fork there. If you can go to the next slide, this is where Israel actually is. See that little peace sign there? It's the same one, that yellow color. That's where Israel is right now. So when people have arguments about, oh, whose land is it? It's pretty clear. God set the boundary markers. I'm, I read it, even though we were like, whoa, lots of words. That's not God's land. All of that expand out is God's chosen people's land. The little orange part, just for fun, is that Sinai Peninsula is what they captured in the the Six-Day War. And then in 1982, they gave it back to Egypt. I don't know why, but they did. (laughs) Even though it was God's land, they had no right to give it back. Um, So God's not done with Israel, and that's a part of the Abrahamic covenant, that he made an unconditional, unilateral agreement. And what it says when it's talking about the smoke and the fire passing through the two pieces, this covenant, the idea and the word actually for covenant, the root word means to cut, which is really interesting when we think about it. So it's basically the covenant of the pieces is what they call it. And God, or or, I'm sorry, in that tradition, people would cut the animals in half and then one person would walk through to hold up their end of the agreement. The other person would walk through and they were essentially saying, May I be cut in half like these animals if I break this covenant. It's that severe. It was a straight-up covenant. It wasn't like uh, with lots of clauses at the bottom. That's not what the small pigeon and dove were. It was like the the fine print. No, that's not what it was. Um, So it was very severe. The problem is, is God is perfect and man is fallible. So God says, "Mm -mm. I'm going to walk through alone, and I'm going to make this covenant, and I will not break it, even if you do. So when people argue about Israel and oh, God's done there, Paul is pretty clear that he's not. And people read, when they, you read Bible commentaries and stuff, and Hebrews, I'm uh, sorry, Romans 8, 9, 10, you're like, yes, this is great. And then they get to Romans 11 where it says that God's not done with Israel. And they go, uh, well, obviously he means something else then. And a lot of our, uh, a lot of the church says because Israel was outside of the land for so long, they're like, well, all these promises in the Bible, about Israel must be about the church and only the church, not Israel at all. So now that Israel's back in the land, they don't know what to do with that. So they just say, well, that's not the real Israel. I think it is the real Israel. That's my opinion. You can look it up for yourself, but I'm pretty sure you'll find the same, you'll come to the same conclusion. Uh, But that's the Abrahamic covenant. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that we deal with. Now, uh, Paul goes also at length in the New Testament to talk about just because you're Jewish doesn't mean you're a child of God. It has to be by the faith that Abraham has. And that's why we can be called children of Abraham. It's because of the faith that we have. And that's what we talked about when we looked at um, 
Romans 4. So if you guys uh, quickly will look at the next verse on the screen. It says in Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, I, the Lord, have called you, that you is a singular Hebrew word. It's not you, plural, like all of you guys. It's not like that. It's you personally. So who is he speaking about? We'll see. And we'll hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. So a person is going to be given as a sign of a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. We know that Jesus stood up and said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the good news, to set at liberty the captives, to open the blind eyes. This prophecy is the Lord saying that I'm going to send a person as a covenant to the people. So when we look at the animals being the sign of the covenant, we look at circumcision in a second as a sign of the covenant. Jesus is the fulfillment of every covenant. The Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, Noahic, whatever you want to call them. <laughs> Lots of big words. Jesus, it all points to Jesus. And in Hebrews 10, 5, this is the best. I think this is awesome. So when we talked about animals, bulls and goats and all that stuff and pigeons and doves, Hebrews 10, 5 says, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, speaking to God, but a body you have prepared for me. So in place of the sacrifices and the offerings that we see, Jesus offered his body. He died on the cross to pay for the sins of the world. So it's really interesting when we look at all these things, how it all ties together. Um, I would like to go through chapter 16 real quick. It's not very long. Um, If you guys can just bear with me, we won't do 17 tonight. But um, we'll see what happens when Abraham forgets. Um, He forgets everything that God just told him. All that's the good stuff we just talked about, the covenant and being blessed and all this stuff, right out the window. I can't relate. When God tells me something's going to happen, or if I feel like God's doing something, I am faithful to the end. Right? Everybody? I love that God shows us the the fallibility, is that a word, of man? Especially his patriarchs, you know, the men that are supposed to be the men of faith. You see how they behave. uh, Chapter 16, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar, They got that servant when they made that sidetrack into Egypt, which they weren't supposed to do. Chris talked about that a couple weeks ago. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Wait a minute. Didn't God just say, I'm going to give you a child? And now Sarah's saying, God's preventing me from having a child. Behold, uh, go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. So it was a custom that uh, if the, the wife was barren, they had these concubines or these servants, and they'd say, you have a child with her, and it will become our child. And that servant is just our property, so it doesn't matter. Sounds really harsh, right? It's not that great. Um, it's not what God intended. And this is the worst. I mean, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. Abram heard the voice of God, right, telling him, you're going to have a son. Not Eliezer. You're going to have your own son from your own body. And it was to believe in God and believe in that. And now he's like, you know what? I'm going to take this into my own hands. I'm going to go back to working it out. When God gives us a promise and he says, I'm going to do it, the worst thing we can do is say, let me help you. Because he doesn't need our help. He's God. He created everything. He promises everything and delivers everything. And uh, I'll just say this. Take it as it were. But the men in the Bible don't look really good. 
And I can say this as a guy. First, we had Adam listening to Eve eating the fruit. Now, Abraham listening to Sarah. What's going on with the guys? Step up. I'm just kidding. The moral of the story is never listen to your wife. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I got your back. All right. Um, So after, this is a key verse, and, and I love this. It says, so after Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. So Canaan is the land that God promised to Abram, right? He said, you're going to live in Canaan. He's living there for 10 years, which is already a fulfillment of God's promise. Yet he's doubting God's promise now by taking matters into his own hands. Have we ever done that? Have I ever done that? I've done that all the time. This church is a prime example. I was praying for Lansdale and was very excited. Everybody saw my Lansdale pin and everything. I was just like, Lansdale, this is where I want to be, right? And I was agonizing, like, God, why is nothing happening? I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And this church started, like, months later. And I was like, whoa, this is it. This is the fulfillment. This is awesome. But even then, it's like, all right, God, what am I going to do? How am I going to make this work in Lansdale? What am I going to do? And God's like, get your hands off of this thing. This is my church. I'm like, okay, I'll just set up the chairs. That's fine. <laughs> um, but it's very easy for us to say, God, I, I know, but let me, I just want to touch it. I just want to be a part of it. And that's what they get into trouble with here. And the consequences are huge, and they're still going on now. So let's read through. So after Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Hagar, it's not a a good moment for her either. She's like, I conceived. Must be you. Must not be Abram. He's totally fine. 75 years young. and Or 86 at this point, I think. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, because 10 years had gone by. Yeah. So he's 86. And uh, so she's starting to dog or diss Sarah, her mistress, as they call her. And uh, it says in verse 5, And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. So she's like, I call God as my witness. If you ever do something this stupid again, and Abraham's like, what did I do? Right? I listened to you. I did exactly what you wanted me to do. And Abram, again, doesn't look very good. He's like, do whatever you want with her. I don't care. That's a paraphrase, but <laughs> it's essentially what he says. Abraham said to Sarah, I behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. That's a nice Bible way of saying, do whatever you want. I don't care. I have a child on the way. Woohoo! I did my part, which the guy's part is, doesn't take much, obviously. Um, then Sarai, <laughs> sorry, uh, then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. So everybody's just not looking very good in this story. That's why you know the Bible has to be true. Because every other book, it's always painting people in this amazing light. They're perfect. They do everything. They're our great prophet. They're our great this. There's never any flaws. And then we have this Bible story and we say, Abraham is the father of faith. Really? What faith is this? But God said, hey, I'm keeping the covenant. You're not. It's all about me. God's doing it as a gift of grace to Abraham. You're like, grace, that's not in the Old Testament. It is. So Sarah dealt harshly, and Hagar fled. And we'll wrap up here. I forgot to turn off my cell phone. That's probably why that's happening. In verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. And a lot of times, I don't know about this. I haven't done the research, but many people say that when we see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's a pre-incarnate version of Jesus. 
God's son appearing to people. You can do the work yourself, research it. I'd love to hear what you find out um, because I think it's interesting, especially when you see where he shows up. Um, He found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? As if he didn't know. She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. So he's telling Hagar to be the bigger person here, even though she's the servant. Because she started it, if you want to think about it that way. Well, Sarah started it by giving her to Abram. But, um, and it says, the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. That's God's grace. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. I hope no one's ever described me as that. <laughs> that's, I don't know if that's a blessing or a curse. It depends on the situation, I guess. He's a wild donkey of a man. His hand is against everyone. And everyone's hand is against him. So nobody likes this guy. And he doesn't like anybody. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 60, uh, sorry, 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So Ishmael, if you're not familiar, uh, many people believe that he is the ancestor of the Arab people. The, the Ishmaelites, the people who, the Palestinians, the, the, the Muslims. And we can see the tense, uh, we see it going on right now, actually. The, the war between the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac, Jacob, Israel, you know. And when we, I don't want to get too heavy with this, but we have to be careful that when God tells us something that we don't take matters into our own hands because God forgives us and he's gracious, but we oftentimes have to deal with the consequences in the real world, the the temporary, you know, if you punch a guy's lights out, you can confess and be forgiven, but the guy is still going to have a black eye and he's still going to sue you and you're still going to have to go to court about it. You know what I mean? Like there's still, God doesn't just say, oh yeah, whatever. Like you still oftentimes have to lay in the bed that you've made, but we are counted righteous in Christ. Our standing with God does not change even though our situation may. And it's, it's important for me to say that because I oftentimes get stuck like, I thought everything was supposed to work out for me. This isn't working out for me. You know, uh, and God's like, well, be faithful, believe, and I will, make it, I, will, I will make it right. You know, God is faithful that way. He honors his end of the bargain even when I don't. Um, but you look at Abraham's one decision to say, I'm going to listen to my wife instead of God. He has a son named Ishmael. And now Ishmael's descendants and, and, uh, and his descendants through Isaac are at war. And we still see it going on. Um, so it's very, it's a cautionary tale, I guess. Ending in chapter 16, you're like, oh, but this is the father of faith. This is the guy who says that if you believe in God, it'll be counted to you as righteousness. If you believe in Jesus, you will be seen as righteous in God's sight. So isn't this comforting in a, in a sense to see how Abraham behaves after this is 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 done. But you know what? The next chapter, God says, walk, get up and walk, be blameless. And it's just like our Christian walk. We, you know, if we sin, if we step outside of God's will, if we take 
matters into our own hands like Abraham did. God says, turn the chapter, walk blameless, and let's move on. Praise God for that. That's awesome. That's what we'll look at in chapter 17 next week when he says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. That's how God sees him. And it's interesting when he says, it's translated in English, you know, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. In the Hebrew, it's actually, I have done it. So in God's mind, he's already given Abraham a son, Isaac. In God's mind, he's already blessed the nations through Abraham. And that's comforting too because God sees the end from the beginning. And uh, this is an never-ending covenant that he's made with Abraham and with us if we believe by faith. So let's pray.